0: Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast, conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever evolving workforce. Hello, my
1: name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on. As well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Alas, it's April. And for many of you, that may mean daffodils or spring cleaning. For others, it may mean sprinting against a looming tax day deadline. But for me, and for those of you out there who know me, realize that April can only mean one thing. It's master's time. For fellow Duffers, I know you feel my excitement. Even if you are like the majority of golfers who can't actually score an entry pass, this of course is the first major of the season that many of you are watching on TV. As an elite 100 or fewer grinded out over four days on the storied Private club grounds nestled away down that long, winding road in Augusta. Now, as much in love as I may be with the Masters Tournament, and with golf in general, that love may be branded as an unrequited one at best. <laughs> because notwithstanding my sheer relation for the game, the reality is this. The sport has not historically been very welcoming to women. Real talk. In its 89-year history, Augusta did not admit female members until 2012. Like Augusta, the sport itself has had a gender problem. And that has literally been par for the course. Women currently represent over half of the population, 54% of the US workforce, but less than one quarter of all golfers here in the States. Four. And there is sufficient data to link the ways in which the absence of this key demographic on the green during weekends is potentially impacting their green during weekdays. To explore the connection between recreational golf and gender equity issues in the workplace, I am absolutely thrilled to have with me LPGA professional Dana Rader. Dana who is currently the Director of Instruction at Belfair in Bluffton, South Carolina, was inducted into the LPGA Professionals Hall of Fame in 2016. She owns too many achievements to itemize, but among them are winning the 2014 Nike Outstanding Achievement in Teaching Award. She has been designated as one of the top 100 teachers by Golf Magazine, and she was also named by Golf Digest to its prestigious list of the top 50 teachers in America. Dana has likened her role in Ladies Golf to that of founder, as she has mentored numerous other LPGA professionals by assisting them in their career and continuous learning paths. Dana,
0: welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so very excited and thrilled that that you asked me to be here Absolutely. Listen, I know this is one of the most demanding
1: periods of the golf season with pros and amateurs gearing up to get their game in order. So I really want to thank you for making the time to chat with me. Absolutely. So Dana, as you already know, but for the benefit of our non-golfing listeners, golf plays an incredibly important role in business. Its popularity and global appeal make it an effective means of developing Clients or customers and building relationships and teams across all industries. And for many companies, the golf tournament is the annual highlight, to be sure. It's simply an intrinsic part of how business works. And to that point, I would like to preface our discussion about the relationship between business and golf with a few statistics of interest. An estimated 90% of Fortune 500 CEOs play golf. 92% of executives use golf as a way to make business contacts. 97% of executives view golf as a way to establish a close relationship with business associates with most saying, there is no better way to get to know associates and clients. 43% of executives will tell you that some of their biggest deals have been made or started on the golf course. And here's an interesting final stat Executives who golf earn almost 20% more than those who don't. So with this context, I wonder, Dana, if you could talk about the most typical motivations that you hear about from new clients who reach out to you, male or female.
0: Yeah, you know, I actually hear from both sides. But with women, they want the same opportunity to build those relationships and golf as you well know when you're out on the golf course for four hours you're riding in a golf cart you observe a lot of things and you have the opportunity to get to know one another so I did a lot of women clinics when I was in Charlotte and one of the things that I really had our female clients focus on was getting confidence in their golf game first getting some confidence in making sure that they feel good to go out and, and not embarrass themselves. And, and I think that's a real important key is getting that confidence factor. And then from there, if you are a confident golfer, because it's an intimidating game, that alone puts you in a, in a nice arena with the people that you're playing with. So I had a lot of people, women that I really worked with to help them get better at golf so that they could relax and and get to know uh, whoever they're playing with and make some strides uh, in the right direction for them.
1: Right. Now, 73% of business women who do golf say that playing the game has helped them develop relationships and network. And, and you and I both obviously agree about that. Absolutely. And you talked a little bit, you alluded to that, Dana, when you talked about the fact that you can learn about your people when you're in a four-hour round of golf. Can you talk a little bit about what savvy business leaders can learn about their clients or business associates on the links and how those nuggets can translate into a meaningful business advantage for them?
0: The first thing that comes to mind, the first thing that I always said is mood swings. How do they handle their moods when they hit a bad shot or how long can they fake that on the golf course. You know, after about four or four and a half hours, sometimes that real you is going to show up. You, you get a real snapshot of what that person can really be like in a boardroom and just listening to the things that he or she may say, but it's, it's important to, to see how they handle their own game.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So golf is clearly not just about bourbon trash talk and cigars. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So golf is a sport that was seemingly built for a pandemic when you look at the very nature of the game, being outside and naturally Mm. distanced, you know, given all the rules of etiquette. So it's one of the few activities that actually experienced a boom during uh, the past couple of years with a record high of apparently two and a half million new beginners. So what, what kind of growth have you seen specifically amongst women golfers in this same time frame? And, and to what do you credit that growth?
0: Well, in 2020, the national golf foundation published that 3 million brand new golfers took the game up for the first time in the percentages. I can, I don't recall them breaking it down male and female, but they did break it down age group of 40 and over, which 40 was probably the biggest number. In 2021, those numbers haven't come out yet for last year, but they felt that it would exceed that number. Mm -hmm. So I think you're seeing a resurgence in the game. I think for me, I run beginner programs at my club at Belfair, and the majority of them are women. I have only had probably in each class only one or two men So I'm seeing a lot of women getting into the game for the first time. So I would say that 3 million golfers, I would say it would be a good 50-50 or maybe 60-40 women that are taking it up. And these women are taking it up for the right reasons. I mean, they're taking it up because they want to enjoy the fellowship and the camaraderie. And then people that are taking it up for business reasons, I would encourage them to make sure you fall in love with the game first.
1: Absolutely, and we're going to definitely explore that a little bit more fully in a moment. From a purely economic standpoint, women are said to control 85% of consumer spending and have a purchasing power that is thought to now top a whopping $31 trillion. That's with a T, trillion, in worldwide spending. So, not completely disconnected from this conversation and not to sound trite, women also spend an annual average of 75% Mm. more on clothing than men and golf courses are a fabulous place to look fashionable, I will tell you. So you would just think that with these kinds of statistics that all components of the golf industry, country clubs, vacation resorts, the retail industry, just to name a few, would want to do just a little bit more to entice this influential demographic.
0: No, right, right. Now, I think what happens is most people in the pro shops, uh, not downgrading anybody, don't know those statistics, don't understand those statistics, and how important those statistics are. I've known these statistics for a long time because you know I'm a huge promoter of women's golf. Women having fair treatment and equitable treatment uh, at the golf courses. And I myself have have had some of that mistreatment even as a golf professional. But I I think it's a lack of education. Not sure if education would change the mindset of some, but I, I do think that's an important component.
1: Absolutely. And you know, with the recent wake-up call in the car industry, that 90% of car purchase decisions are now being influenced by women, that industry sure figured out these realities that we're talking about here a yeah. few years ago. That's impressive. Right. Listen, to tee up the next question, I have a few more statistics that should really be considered with respect to the significance of golf as a business tool. Bear with me here. Women continue to outpace men in higher education accomplishments, representing 60% of all graduate degrees earned and more than half of all doctorate degrees. For every 100 men promoted to manager, only 86 women are promoted, obviously then leaving even fewer women to promote to senior levels. And this is according to the 2021 installment of the McKinsey Report on Women in the Workplace. Currently, And notwithstanding that women make up over half the workforce, they only hold 35% of management positions. This number dips to 20% for C-suite positions and sinks even lower for women of color who account for just 4% of those executive spots. And according to a study from last year entitled The Old Boys Club, Schmoozing and the Gender Gap by Z.B. Cullen, and R. Perez Truglia, nearly 40% of the gender pay gap can be explained by the informal relationships that men have with their male managers. Mm. So with that context, let's dig a little deeper about what gets in the way for aspiring businesswomen to participate more proportionally in the game of golf. And I want to work from the inside out. What are the biggest psychological errors that women make in getting involved in this incredible game? That's before they even make the mistake of not calling you for their first lesson.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So a couple of things. Some make the mistake of seeing the game on TV, watching people play and thinking it's easier than it is. And then when they get in the game, they find out how hard it is and frustrates them and they quit playing. The other side is that when, when they're out playing, I really encourage women to establish some confidence in their game because the confidence issue is a huge part of business in general. But it's certainly uh, so much for the game of golf and knowing that you can go out and hold your own, even if you have a bad day, because everybody's going to have a bad day. And when people say, you know, I'm afraid of hitting this shot. I'm afraid of hitting it over the sand. I'm afraid of playing with Joe, the the CEO. I'm afraid of doing this. My stock answer is how's that fear working for you? (laughs) Not too good. (laughs) Okay. So you got to change the message that you're giving your brain and start giving it the right messages.
1: Right. So confidence is clearly more important than some amazing athleticism or ability.
0: Correct. I mean, I've I've taught numerous women that have never played a sport at all and have gone on to break 100, break 90 and shoot well into the 80s and, and even break uh, into the high 70s. So athleticism is not a prerequisite. Good.
1: I'm, I could say it all day long, but I'm glad that they're hearing it from you, Dana. Yeah. A pro. thank you. <laughs> you know, there's a well-known study and one which was recently reaffirmed by. LinkedIn a couple of years ago that says, men apply for a job when they meet 60% of the qualifications, but women only apply if they meet 100% of them. So your comments here are certainly in line with the research that supports the fact that capable women tend to deselect in ways that men don't. And as women, we will have to get past this
0: perfection principle, especially for a game like golf. Right. And, and I think what most golfers in general don't understand is that hitting golf balls on the driving range and going out and playing are two entirely different things. And it's not how well you strike. It is how well you can manage your game and manage your, your next shot so that you are missing the ball in the right place. And so you get more strategic thinking rather than swing thinking. And I think women and men, we all do that. But if we can focus on one shot at a time and be more strategic about it and less about thinking about four or five different swing thoughts, you'll you'll have more confidence on the golf course because you've got a process you can rely on.
1: I'm so glad that you said that because I have a very, very close friend who has taken lessons from a coach for the past three years, yet she has never played on a single golf course, Dana, because she says, and I'm sure you've heard this, this is her standard refrain, I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. This brilliant and phenomenal woman is an accomplished professor at a major university in the East Coast. And for you, my friend, if you are listening and to all ladies who are listening, I can't tell you how many male golfers who don't mind proudly facing me on my fairway on a weekly basis as they try to course correct and get back on their fairway are not perfect. And there's not necessarily any shame, or Dana, as you might say, they handle their shame and embarrassment differently from the way in which women handle their embarrassment with the game, right?
0: Absolutely. But a comment along the line of your friend, and I'm speaking to her directly, hope she's listening. Please. If you're taking lessons solely on the driving range, you need to tell your pro to get you out on the golf course, number one. When I start a beginner program, I start with the short game. So I take them out on the golf course and we play from 25 yards and in. I do etiquette with them. I get them comfortable with hitting bad shots on the golf course and telling them everybody's going to hit bad shots. So let's have some fun. And if you're waiting to get your game perfect, you're going to be waiting a lifetime because it's never going to happen. But I would encourage her to play from 50 yards and in, get out and play two holes, get out and play nine holes, But get out there because what what, what reason are you playing, taking lessons if if you're not going to go on the golf course? And if he or she is not getting him on the golf course, she should demand that, that she needs to have on course etiquette. She needs to have on course pace of play, uh, club selection, some of the rules, things that will make her more comfortable Most new golfers are so uncomfortable on the golf course. And that's why I get them on the golf course as soon as I can, because I want them to know that this is fun and they love it.
1: Yes. Beautiful. I'm so glad that you spoke to her.
0: And (laughs) many,
1: (laughs) no, absolutely. And many other ladies uh, who say that right? Yeah, I so hear it a lot. That's such an important message. So I'm so glad that you made that point, Dana. Thank you. You know, you, you talk about some of the things that you do as a coach when you spoke to my friend and many others. Tell me and tell our listeners about some other ingredients to your coaching special sauce, if you will, in empowering female golfers.
0: Well, I, I think that the game of golf can beat you up, okay? And my job is to cheer them on, but never do it when it's not truth. I'm always going to tell them, you know, you need to make a correction, you need to do this or that. But i always want to make sure that I encourage them with truth. Say, okay, when you get out on the golf course, I try to put every player into a process, just the same way you operate your business. You've got a a set of processes that you do for everything. Every sport is the same way. And the better you want to get at it, the tighter those processes have got it to be. And the biggest advice I tell every single golfer is that if you get on the golf course and start asking everybody to tell you what you're doing wrong, you're going to derail and have a really bad time because particularly as, as a new golfer, everybody's telling you what to do. Mm -hmm. And every single time you start a new habit. So you're creating a new habit every time you do something different. So I try to get golfers into good processes and it really helps them stay organized in their thoughts.
1: That's great. You know, our conversation here reminds me of an appropriate quote from Jack Nicklaus, and that is success depends almost entirely on how effectively you learn to manage the game's two ultimate adversaries. That's right. Of course, and yourself. That's
0: right, that's a great quote.
1: (laughs) So agreed about what uh, must be done. Let's turn to factors beyond our internal locus of control. So what are some of the biggest complaints about the sport besides these inner demons uh, that female golfers talk about?
0: I'd say the first one is pace of play. So I'll never forget one of the courses I worked at in Charlotte. I was uh, out on the golf course rangering, just check on the pace of play and this group of men uh, stopped me and said, could you go tell those ladies in front of you that they've got to move out? And I said, I sure will. And I said, but I'm gonna go look in front of them first. So I went and looked in front of them and they were waiting on a group of men. So I turned around and I came back and I said, sir, they are on pace and it is a group of men, a foursome of men that's holding them up. And he goes, oh, wow. I said, so here's the lesson. You just looked up and saw those women and you automatically assumed they were holding you up. And, and, and that is something to me that's really offensive. And, uh, and I said that to him. I said, that's just offensive. You shouldn't do that. And he goes, lesson learned. He was, I mean, they were nice guys, but this is what scare women to death out on the golf course, particularly in new So They're running because anybody that comes behind them, they're automatically freezing and, and scared to death. And, and then it just ruins their whole game. So I always tell them, keep up with the group in front of you, not the one behind you.
1: I love it. I'm so glad you shared that story. That is a great lesson. Yeah. So some of those stereotypes and some of the biases that go on when Rangers or starters or other golf personnel immediately see a woman and think that that's the problem on the course. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as an avid female golfer, I do have an additional lens that belongs in the conversation and that's race. The lack of access to these informal networks in the workplace that we're talking about are certainly a significant barrier for all women, but it's even more difficult for women of color. Going back to your story about the assumptions that were made of the women who were playing slowly in front of you that you shared. I don't know if you recall, perhaps two years ago, where a story in the news about four African-American women who were playing in a Pittsburgh area country club had the police called on them for slow play.
0: That is ludicrous.
1: Yes, it was a private club. You got to be kidding me. I wish I were kidding you, Dana. The police came in a, a cart to the hole where they were and they were escorted off of the course And I have one better, unfortunately. One of the women in that foursome was actually a member of the club. Wow. Wow. Slow play. Yeah, Yeah. right. And I honestly, I don't know if it was just because of the race. I don't know if it was because of the intersection of the two, but they do pose a compound hurdle given that. The sport is not only dealt with gender challenges, but well-known racial ones as well. And you don't have to be a golfer to know that when Tiger Woods burst onto the professional golf scene in 1996, he was the single reason why the game enjoyed such a surge amongst Absolutely. golfers of, of all races, right? Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and while I digress, I do think it's important because if we are to unpack the relationship between women's participation in golf and their aspirations, For greater equity, we have to acknowledge that this will not be the same conversation for all women. I mean, that was a stunning example uh, that I still can't believe happened, where police were called for slow play.
0: That's just terrible. And you have to believe that it had to have been a little a little bit of both Mm -hmm. race and women.
1: And it's incidents like that, right, Dana, that can have a chilling effect not only on women or people of color or women of color or any combination of these but when you hear stories like that the game of golf doesn't feel very welcoming clearly right so let's use this as a hallway to considering the fairly exclusionary history of golf now to your points while it is important for businesswomen who want to get into the game to take certain actions it is fair to say that women don't control the whole equation. There's a well-worn misconception that golf is an acronym for gentlemen only, ladies forbidden, right? You know that one, right, Dana? Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, but I wonder what your personal experience as a woman coming up in the sport during the 70s and 80s was like.
0: You know, I was fortunate because I had a really good instructor in Morganton, North Carolina golfers there were very low handicappers. So I played golf with a lot of men. So when I started the game within two years, I was a scratch golfer. So I put an enormous amount of work. So members would see me up on the driving range, practicing and working on my game. So my experience, uh, and I didn't take the game up until I was 16 years old, but my experience uh, at my club in Morganton was exceptional. In fact, there was a man there by the name of Billy Joe Patton. If you ever get a chance, Google him. He almost won the 1954 masters as an amateur and he was a member at my club. Mm. So I played golf with him and, you know, I had a great experience. So I didn't feel any problems. Uh, People were more interested to see if this tall, skinny blonde could play the game. And and I I really could.
1: (laughs) That's great. By the way, Dana, I understand that being from Morganton, you either have to know how to swing a golf club or swing a baseball bat, right? Correct. <laughs> yes. And did you do both or just golf? <laughs> no, just just golf. Okay. <laughs> Great. Interesting background, interesting history, and good to hear. But I do want to give a quick legal context here. Discrimination was, of course, outlawed in 1963 as a de jure matter but golf as a practical matter has enjoyed a few workarounds. Discrimination on the basis of sex or race by bona fide golf clubs is totally legal in a couple of ways. You've got the Civil Rights Act which contains an exemption for private clubs in their membership activities. Then you've got the First Amendment in the Constitution which protects private clubs as they are said to engage in expressive association and expressive activity. And then on top of these legal workarounds for excluding women from the sport, there is of course a long history of golf being widely regarded as an old boys network with behaviors from the pro shop to the first tee that have had a bit of a chilling effect on women as we've been talking about. So with that and notwithstanding, the incredible support that you received coming up in the sport. What's the most notorious memory regarding exclusion that you had as a female golfer?
0: I remember a story when I went to Myrtle Beach to play golf and the starter says, you've got to go to the four T's. You've got to go up to the ladies T's. And I said, no, sir, I'm playing back here with these men um, no, you're a woman and you're to play on those board tees where the women are. And I said, Sir, here's the deal I'm gonna hit my tee shot. And if you still think after I hit my tee shot, and quite frankly, I think I'd outdrive these guys because I saw them swing on the driving range. <laughs> I said, But if I don't impress you at all, I'll move forward. And so I got up and I blasted, I was so steaming hot and I, I just blasted it down the middle and I just looked over at him and he just turned his head and walked away. Huh. <laughs> <Shunning>. <laughs> but it was, it was
1: sweet. <laughs> I love the way that you handled that was such a plum.
0: That's where you gotta reach down and grab that confidence. Yes, you know, yes. When, when you know, because he was trying to intimidate me, he was trying to uh, shame me. It's what it felt like. And I was a young girl and, you know, I knew what I could do. And I just think you, you would be surprised how that's not happened to me. But just one time that's happened to me more than one time. But he was the one that stood out the most.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Unbelievable. And, and Dana, you are such a wonderful ambassador for the sport who truly believes that we've come a long way. I know in conversations that we have had about this, but what are your biggest pet peeves about persisting attitudes towards or treatment of female golfers at either public or private clubs? And and what would you like to see change?
0: I think at the clubs that I have been in in the last several years, that has gotten a lot better but there are some clubs that I have gone to that I didn't feel welcomed when I went into to the pro shop. I've spent a lot of time in pro shops over the years where I have felt less than or, or just not treated very cordial. Right. And when I first got in the business, I'll never forget, I'm behind the counter and I'm a pro and another assistant pro is there with me. It was a male and a guy walks in and he looks at the other guy who just got in the business and asked him a ruling question and totally ignored me. And I just looked at him and I'm going, I bet you, he doesn't know that question. And he didn't. And he goes, well, I'll go ask the pro. And I said, I have the answer. So it happens with professionals as well.
1: Right. I remember once I wore a golf shirt from Tory Pines where I had played a number of years ago, and which I subsequently wore on a public course in Cincinnati. And on the first tee box, Dana, this burly starter, inspects the logo on my sleeve and asks me with a straight face, I might add, uh, hmm, Tory Pines, huh? Now, did you play it? Or did you just do some shopping in the clubhouse?
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So when when I patiently informed (laughs) him, David, that I had actually
1: played it, I I was then given this snappy little follow-up test. His eyes narrowed and he asked me, well, north or south? (laughs) And I had played the south course, which you know, of course, is the harder of the two. But I'm betting that male golfers don't generally get questions like that when they wear.
0: No, not at (laughs) all. No. Mm. Oh. It's
1: incredible. So yes, we've come a long way, but there are still some things that can be done in this space. And many clubs are understanding that even though exclusion is legal, it's not necessarily smart. St. Andrew's Lynx finally caved a, a few years ago when it changed its bylaws to allow women after 260 years in part because majors were under threat. Progressive trustees and board members are slowly chipping away at the good old boys business model. And I'm wondering if you think that these kinds of social pressure will work to affect the kind of meaningful change towards more inclusion for women in the sport.
0: Yes, and I, I think it's gotten a lot better. Mm-hmm. I think it's got a long way to go. I think these kind of podcasts making people more aware are absolutely important. But I do think, you know, looking back years ago, when I first got in the business in the 80s, it was not as welcoming. I can tell you that I'm hopeful that in the years to come, more and more women will be members of prestigious clubs as they deserve that right.
1: You know, there are still some real outliers out there. Some are more famous than others. I don't know if you know, for instance, about one particular club that prides itself on having no trees, no flowers, and no women. There, women, and I don't know if you've ever heard of this. this No, I haven't. This club uh, has a 300 yard road that leads from the main road to the clubhouse. And if men are coming to play, they must be dropped off by their wives at the main road. And if they are seen walking up that main road, it is actually called the walk of shame by the members because it wow, means a, a woman was within 300 yards of that clubhouse. Wow, wow, that exists,
0: it just seems so ancient, not, it, I mean, so out of the times, so wrong. It does, but again, Dana, just for. The entertainment pleasure of our
1: listeners is another club where the only time women are even allowed on the property is into the clubhouse for a precise three-hour slot on the Saturday before Christmas to buy
0: their husband's Christmas gifts. Wow. wow. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I mean, you have it's to just, laugh, you know? You do. We're on the same side. It makes you want to cry, too. Yes. And to be clear, all of these
1: actions are perfectly legal right? Yeah. And, th- and that's why I set out the legal context. But it's so incredibly passe. And I just yeah. have to ask you if you think that all male clubs will still be around in 50 years?
0: No, I don't. Okay. And I, I think they're diminishing now. I, I think it's going to be a thing of the past. Our, our country and the world has evolved. I really think it's less than 50 years.
1: Good. Glad to hear this.
0: Dana, what do
1: you wish that more girls and women knew about the game of golf?
0: I wish they knew the love that you can have for a sport, because golf teaches you so much about life. It teaches you patience. It teaches you the rules. It teaches you so much about yourself. If you give the game a chance to do that, I feel the game of golf has taught me a lot about leadership. It's taught me a lot about other people. It's taught me about how to challenge myself how to be confident when I'm not confident. There's just so many life lessons in the game of golf. So I would pass along to all the listeners out there that the the great thing about golf is it's going to teach you something. And sometimes the lessons are a lot tougher than we like, but there are no lessons on the mountaintop. It's always kind of down in the valley. But let golf teach you some things. And it's a sport of a lifetime
1: i agree very special thank you for sharing that as we wind down i know that my listeners know what's coming next and that's solutions dana my favorite place so (laughs) for women who are listening i want you to pick up your pens dana can you just give them a couple of action steps that they can take right now to open up this incredible pathway for both personal and business development?
0: So the the first pathway to getting into the game is do your homework and research on a good golf instructor. Don't make the mistake of taking lessons from your spouse, your next door neighbor, your friends down the street, even those people that have played golf for a long time. Yeah, They're not teachers. So it's so important that you get a referral, ask people who are good instructors. The LPGA has a great, on their website, you can go to find a teacher in your area. And there's a lot of really good women teachers there. So the first step is you gotta find somebody that's gonna light the path for you and show you the way to play the game. That's number one, because don't make the mistake of trying to go out there and learn bits and pieces from everybody who offer you tips. On the golf industry side of things,
1: can you give us a few strategies that you think country clubs and golf courses and other golf facilities can take to be more inclusive and more welcoming of women?
0: I think it starts with that education. I think it starts with making sure that the rules that you have at your club is not alienating women and that it's more promoting the male um, dominance. So I like to see the pro shop have a female in there who mm-hmm. is not only doing the buying, but she's a golf professional. She teaches and runs clinics. I'd like to see the industry have more women golf professionals. I think the sky is the limit for them. But I, I really think that the, the game of golf is for everybody. And I I think no matter whether you play sports, it's for everybody. I agree. Listen, a Catalyst
1: study from a few years ago found that about half of women surveyed, 46%, cited exclusion from informal networks as the biggest impediment to reaching their career goals, with golf being specifically called out. So I know that I would like to see business leaders take some meaningful steps to open up this invaluable networking system. And because of the professional space in which I live, Dana, you know I have to tell you that I wonder sometimes about whether or not the Me Too movement has actually hurt women's ability to make deeper inroads into these networks that their male counterparts have dominated. Because I do think that a lot of men have doubled down on their efforts to avoid placing themselves in social or presumably compromising one-on-one situations with women since many of them felt and still feel that Me Too has been an attack on them to some extent. And I want to see more male mentors engage with female mentees over a productive round of golf because both mentor and mentee can learn so much from each other with this game, as you have pointed out. Uh, So I would just like to put out there for our listeners uh, as a result of the fact that inclusion strategies are such a big part of my own executive coaching practice. So I just want to make sure that everybody out there listening understands that men can and should absolutely be networking with women on the golf course men should not be resorting to the old scripts that Dr. Brad Johnson and Dr. David Smith, authors of an incredible book entitled Athena Rising, how and why men should mentor women. Uh, So an example of an old script would be benevolent sexism where a male leader might say something like, well, women are better left to other women for mentoring. Uh, You know, another example of an old script might be where a man might say they want to golf with women, but that it's complicated with the opposite sex. This book will be appreciated by any gender, but I highly recommend all male business leaders to read it. It was written by two men, specifically for men, because men are too often reluctant to be seen alone with a junior woman, particularly in the Me Too era. So Athena Rising, gentlemen, download the book and then book a tea time. Dana, let me just add a couple of items to these challenges that we're putting before business leaders. And as a business leader myself, I'm holding myself accountable to take part in these challenges. So to executives who are country club members, don't be exclusive about invitations to your weekend golf outings right? At the risk of shaking up your routine, perhaps you extend an invite to beginner golfers, somebody who you normally wouldn't play golf with, get them interested, introduce them to other members and pro shop staff, make time for the clubhouse after the round, right? Business resource groups or affinity groups, they can sponsor golf lessons and clinics and host empowerment-oriented events like representative PGA or LPGA members, anti-bias training initiatives for country club staff to eliminate the othering, Dana, that you've been talking about that goes on, that still goes on for women and minority players. Like the assumptions that women are a guest, even though they may be the member. Yeah. Right? Or groundskeepers. Dana, you know what really bothers me when groundskeepers don't...
0: (laughs) I know what you're going to say. <laughs> you
1: know what I'm going to say. Groundskeepers not pausing their equipment when women are addressing the ball. Yeah. Uh, or the way that pro shops handle calls from women. Yeah. You know, let me put you on hold. And they're gone. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. so there are all kinds of training opportunities here for people employed in the golf industry. Uh, And if you're a leader who enjoys the privilege of being on the board of a golf or a country club, and this goes for men and women, use your heft in that capacity constructively. What do you think about any of these, Dana?
0: I really think that the the problem in in the golf industry is the exclusion that we feel excluded. Women feel excluded. I have felt excluded. And I think now we've made some strides, but I also see that we're not talking to each other, the board and the professionals. I think it's all about education. It's all about opening up and talking about the elephant in the room. Uh, It's really important because I've never been shy about giving my opinion, but I also respect other people's opinion. And I also know that it's important that Uh, we have some common ground and that we can talk without being offended. Yes,
1: well put. Listen, I know that the fairways are calling you.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) But I, I want us to leave our conversation on a high note for our listeners. And I'll start with a story of my own. A beautiful Friday afternoon back in October, a few years ago, comes to mind for me. And a very dear friend of mine, a C-suite executive of one of the country's largest health systems and I were golfing. And we often played nine on a Friday afternoon at various courses in the city. And and on that particular Friday, we decided to play at a resort course here in the Charlotte area. Valentine, now closed, you know it well. (laughs) And we decided to play for as long as we could on that particular day. Well, Deborah wanted us to abort on the 12th hole, and I was fine with that. We frankly just both wanted to fast forward to the clubhouse for our customary dinner and cocktail. So we packed up to begin the ride for the six holes back to the clubhouse. But when we got to the 17th tee box, Dana, I stopped the cart and I said, Deborah, we can't do this at this course. We can't not play the 18th hole, and she looked at me completely confused, asked me what I meant, and I explained. She shook her head, she laughed hysterically, but she understood and she obliged me. And we unzipped our shiny little tour bags, unearthed a few bright balls and selected our weapons of choice for hole 18. Hole 18 at the now defunct course was set up like a mini TPC stadium golf course where the 175 yard approach ahead of and surrounding the huge kidney-shaped green was coddled by a 200-room, 12-story resort hotel. Dana, you know this, of course, but just in case anybody out there in listener land does not know about Valentine, I'm explaining what that 18th hole is like. So here's what I told Deborah when I stopped the cart on the 17th hole tucked out of view. I had no idea if anyone was looking at us from the tinted sliding balcony doors on that Friday afternoon at that hotel at the 18th hole, but I knew it was possible. I knew that little girls in particular could be watching us, I told her, and particularly little black and brown girls. And it was important to me that Deborah and I were not racing to the clubhouse past that hole as if we had quit. I explained that we needed to be seen to be finishing the round for that imaginary stadium of little girls of all ages and races. And I will never forget that afternoon or that mandate.
0: That was well said, well said.
1: So I I just wonder if you had to select one memory from your very many where you did something to motivate or inspire women to either get or stay in the game And notwithstanding the prevalence of the challenging dynamics that we have been talking about, what stands out for you, Dana?
0: Well, let's see. I I would say at Pebble Beach in 1989, I'm playing in the first Women in Golf Summit. And it it was a Women in Golf Summit, so it was a big meeting of bringing all of the different golf course USGA, PGA, LPGA, all together to talk about the growth of women's golf. So there was a pro-am, it was uh, four women and myself. Get on the first tee and I'm meeting my partners and and there was this young lady there that was a nervous wreck and I could tell the way she walked up on the tee, she was so afraid and I saw the way she was holding the club and I watched her get up and she swung the club and she missed. And I said, Oh my gosh, she's never played. She's hardly ever played. So I walked over, I put her hands on there. I set her up. I swung her arms back and I, and I manipulated her. I said, now gave her a little instruction. She hit it right down the middle. Well, I did that for 18 holes (laughs) and she had a great time. I, on the other hand, (laughs) At an okay time, but I I I don't know why. But you never know when you're entertaining an angel. Okay, so So, I've always wanted to write and have my work published. I I wanted to write. So, she was a writer for the Dallas Morning News. I said goodbye to her. Three weeks later, she called me, and she was named editor in chief of Golf Women magazine, and she gave me my first start in writing. Dot
1: is fascinating
0: yeah so you know it's you just never know on the golf course who you're going to meet. here's this frail little lady who worked for the Dallas Morning News I wasn't trying to to do anything but help her have a good experience on the golf course that's my job and so I put my game aside to make sure she did paid off
1: (laughs) thank you for sharing that If we want more women in business to get involved in this sport with a goal of creating more roots to the top, my hope with this conversation is to appeal to all the key players in the golf ecosystem to do their part to increase their involvement. Gentlemen and ladies like myself who are business leaders and enjoy the privilege of being capable golfers, now is the time to get on the leaderboard in a meaningful way. And let me say this, real change for women in golf on the industry side of things and on the corporate side is going to be nothing short of a massive collective effort. Male and female leaders who golf need to help women, but junior females will also have to help themselves. Take steps to learn the game, look for and make opportunities. Schedule the time in your calendar for your golf lessons or your tee times as stoutly as we tend to make for all of the other tasks that dominate our daily lives. Dana Rader, LPGA professional and director of instruction at Bellfair Fair in Bluffton, South Carolina. I simply could not have thought of a more perfect guest to have this conversation with for aspiring female golfers who
0: want in. Thank you. Thank you. I think what you're doing is really phenomenal. I think what you're doing is getting the message out and getting the education out. So I applaud you for that and, and to continue on doing that because it's educating and encouraging people to do the right things and the things they know they should do. So I applaud you for doing that. And thank you for having me on the show.
1: Thank you, Dana. I hope all of you have enjoyed this podcast just half as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. Please feel free to reach out to me at thomas at If you should have any questions about this episode, or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening.
0: The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue to discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice. Visit Littler.com slash podcasts.